Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. The topic for today's episode is bonds. Bonds are typically thought of as a more conservative investment, maybe a more stable investment, but this year bonds have been hit really hard, and because of that, many people are asking, what do I do with the bond portion of my portfolio? So that's exactly what we're going to be discussing today, and today's episode is based on a listener question, and this question comes from Kathy. Kathy says, could you please explain why bond fund values go down when interest rates rise? In my IRA and 401k portfolio, I thought moving money into bonds as you get closer to retiring was a safer slash less risky investment than stocks. This has not proved true in this market this year. Thank you, Kathy. Well, thank you, Kathy, for that question. It's a very important question because traditionally, and in most instances, that is exactly right. As you get closer to retirement, and if you've heard me talk about this in other episodes, I talk about the way to think about bonds. I don't think about it in the classic 60-40 method. But in general, you do tend to have more bonds in your portfolio the closer you get to retirement. So that's what we'll be discussing today. Quick reminder, if you've not already done so already, please leave a review for the podcast. It allows more people to find it. I love getting messages and I love getting comments from people who found the podcast saying how much it's helped them. So for those of you that have left a review, thank you so much. If you are listening and enjoying the podcast, please leave a review if you would like to do so. And if you haven't already done so, also check us out on YouTube. You can find the YouTube channel under Root Financial Partners where there's content like this and other content to help you make sure you're making the most of your retirement. So with that being said, let's jump into today's episode. And to start, let's talk about what a bond actually is, because when we understand what it is and we understand how it works, then we can start to understand why bonds are doing what they're doing this year. So before we jump into bonds, let's start with stocks. Actually, if you own a stock, you own a piece of a company. So when you go buy stock in Apple or Nike or McDonald's or whatever stock you own, you are a legitimate and a literal owner of that company. I mean, that company doesn't owe you anything, but you own the company. So if the company value goes up, the value of your stock goes up. If the value of the company goes down, the value of your stock goes down. Well, the bond is different. With a bond, you don't own any piece of the company or the government that you're lending money to. What you're doing is you're lending money to them. So instead of, say, buying stock in McDonald's, if I bought a bond with McDonald's, I'm lending McDonald's my money. They're agreeing to pay me some interest rate for some fixed period of time, and then they pay me my money back at the end of that term. So when you hear about companies being in debt or even governments being in debt, what that is, is that is bonds. That's the way that companies go into debt is they borrow money to finance operations. They borrow money to finance stock buybacks. They borrow money to finance a whole bunch of different things. So if you look at it, so for example, uh, the company with the most debt in the United States market as of 2022 is AT&T. AT&T has about $169 billion worth of debt. Now, when you hear debt, who's that debt to? Who do they owe that debt to? They owe it to bondholders. These bondholders may be individuals like you and I who actually purchase bonds directly from the company, or these bondholders might be institutions or pensions or endowments. So that debt is one way that companies finance their operations. So when we look at it, as I mentioned, AT&T is the number one company in the U.S. market with the most debt. Verizon is next. They have $143 billion of debt. 
Ford, $138 billion. Toyota, $130 billion. So as we look at it, that's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. Sometimes companies are borrowing because there's issues with the company and they need to stay afloat, so they have to borrow money to do so. Sometimes it's because companies realize there's an opportunity and they want to capitalize on the opportunity. So they say, can we borrow debt? Can we go pay? Let's say James is going to purchase a bond with AT&T. Okay, can we pay James 4% interest to borrow his money and then go invest that or reinvest that into something that's going to grow the company much faster? So not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It can be both, but that is how bonds work. Now, you've probably heard of the U.S. debt. The U.S. debt is currently at $31 trillion. Who owns that debt? Well, you do. I do. If you own a bond fund or a bond individually, treasury bonds are ways that people lend their money to the United States government. The U.S. government pays that back over time along with interest. And so when we talk about the national debt and how large it is, these are the ways that it is funded. It is funded through individual bond purchasers or institutions or even other governments purchasing those bonds. And whether it's a government bond or a corporate bond, their liability, meaning the government or the corporation's liability, is your asset if you own the bond. So again, with a bond, you are lending money to a government or a corporation in exchange for them promising to pay you some period or some rate of interest and pay your money back at the end of that period of time or when the bond matures. That being said, bonds are not without risk. So what are a couple of the risks with bonds? Well, there's two main ones that I want to focus on today. One is interest rate risk. As rates go up, bond prices go down. And Kathy, this was your question. You said, could you please explain why bond fund values go down with interest rates rise? Absolutely. Let's take a look at this. Let's say I purchase a bond from AT&T and it's paying me 2% interest. And let's just assume, and I'm just gonna make up a very basic, simple example. I purchased $10,000 worth of bonds that will mature in five years and AT&T promises to pay me 2% interest because that's the prevailing rate at the time. So I own my AT&T bond. It's worth $10,000. The company has promised to pay me 2% interest. And then let's just assume, again, for the sake of simplicity, that tomorrow I wake up and interest rates have spiked to 4%. Well, Verizon is now issuing their bonds. And they're saying, hey, James, we'll pay you 4% interest for a bond. Well, a bond is a security that I can buy or sell on the open market. So there's two ways to think about this. If I continue to hold my $10,000 that I held in bonds, that I purchased in bonds, if I hold that to maturity, so after five years with AT&T, and if AT&T is still solvent, I'm going to be able to get my $10,000 back along with the 2% interest over those five years. But if I'm going to sell my bond before that five-year time frame is up, nobody's going to pay $10,000 for it. They're saying, why would we go pay $10,000 for a bond that's paying 2% interest when we can now go out to Verizon and get a new bond that's also $10,000 or $10,000 worth of it, but it's paying 4% interest. So when you look at it that way, the price of my $10,000 bonds or $10,000 worth of bonds with AT&T, it's going to drop because it's not going to be as valuable to people when they can go get 4% interest somewhere else. So that's why the price of the bond will fall. Someone might pay $8,000 for that bond or $7,500 for those bonds, but they probably wouldn't pay that full $10,000 because the interest rates have risen, which means there's more attractive yields elsewhere, which means if someone wants 2% on my bond, they'll take it, but only at a much lower price. So this is just a very basic, very overly simplified example. There's actually a formula for determining the value of the bond based upon time until maturity, based upon current rates, based upon other factors. You can see how a bond price would rise or fall um, based upon different interest rates going up or down. 
But that's why. If there's now more attractive interest rates like what we're seeing right now, the value of bonds were issued, say, 12 months ago when interest rates are much lower, the value of those has dropped because those bonds aren't attractive anymore. If someone's going to go into the open market to buy a bond paying a lower interest rate, they're only going to do so if they pay a lower price. And by paying a lower price, it's kind of increasing the yield, the yield of maturity that they will realize on that purchase. Now, the opposite is also true. Bonds have had incredible performance over the last 40 years up until this year, and that's because interest rates have been decreasing. If you go back to the 1980s, you had high double-digit inflation, and with that high double-digit inflation, bonds were yielding really high rates. Now, as interest rates have fallen since then, that's been a tailwind for bonds. Because if I can go buy a bond, let's say paying 15% interest, and then a couple years goes by, and now interest rates are only 10%, so that seems very high right now, but I'm talking back in the 80s, well, all of a sudden my bond is very attractive because my bond's paying 15% interest when new bonds issued are only paying 10%, which means people will pay more for my bond, which means the value of it goes up. So as we look at it, that's the big risk of bonds, or one of the big risks of bonds is interest rate risks. As rates go up, bond prices go down, and as rates go down, bond prices go up. So interest rate risk is a key risk of bonds. Another risk is credit risk. So when you have a bond, again, let's go back to what a bond is, is it's a loan to a company or a government. And that loan is good as long as that company or government is solvent. If that company goes bankrupt, you might not get your money back or you might only get a portion of it back. So you have different rating agencies. You have the Standard & Poor's Global Ratings. You have Moody's. You have Fitch. All of these are different bond rating companies. And so, for example, Moody's will rate bonds anywhere from AAA at the highest to C at the lowest. So when these agencies are rating bonds, essentially what they're trying to tell you is what is the credit worthiness of this company or this government. The higher the rating, the more well capitalized the company is, the more likely it is to pay back your loan. The lower the rating, the more risky it is. This company might be in a position where it's distressed. If you hear people talk about high yield bonds, for example, well, those are junk bonds. And what junk bonds are is it's companies that may or may not be able to repay their total obligation. So they're going to pay a higher interest rate because they have to in order to attract capital and in order for people to extend and take that risk to lend money to them. Only They're only going to do that if they're getting a higher rate. But that's telling you that the credit risk is higher. So those are the two main risks I want to talk about today. There are other risks of bonds, but interest rate risk, credit risk, those are two of the primary ones. What's happening this year? Well, interest rates are way up. Now, you may hear that and may be asking, well, what does that mean? Does that mean just bond companies are deciding, hey, we want to pay more interest on the bonds we're issuing? Does that mean uh, U.S. government is saying, hey, we want to pay more interest on the bonds that we're issuing? No, there's a trickle-down effect, and it really all starts with the Fed funds rate. So when you hear people talking about Jerome Powell and the Fed and they're raising rates, the rate that they're raising is the Fed funds rate. And this refers to the interest rate that banks are charging other institutions or other banks for lending cash to them from their reserve balances. So what does that mean for you? Practically nothing, because this interest rate is kind of an interbank lending uh, rate. It has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with an interest rate that you can access, but that rate then trickles down into all other rates. So if the Fed increases the federal funds rate, what it's effectively doing is it's increasing rates across the spectrum because that becomes the lowest available lending rate, and then everything else is based upon that. 
So that trickles down into interest rates on bonds, like we're talking about. That trickles down into rates on mortgages, which have eclipsed 7% as of this recording. That trickles down into car loan rates, into credit card interest rates, and everything else. So when the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, it's effectively raising the rate on which all other interest rates are based, either directly or indirectly. So when we look at this year, the Fed funds rate has increased dramatically. In January of 2022, it was 0.08%, extremely low. As of this recording, it's between 3% and 3.25%. So the Fed funds rate is typically a range, a minimum and a maximum, and that's 3% to 3.25% right now. And it's expected to increase to 4.25% to 4.5% by the end of 2022. So 0.08% to potentially mid 4% by year end, that's an extremely fast increase. So when we go back to the rates and the risks of bonds, well, interest rate risk is a big one, and that's exactly what we've seen this year, is we've seen a dramatic increase in the Fed funds rate. So let's take this a step further. Does this mean that as the Fed has increased rates, that all bonds have been hit the same exact way? Not at all. As you look at it, it makes sense that longer-term bonds will be hit harder than shorter-term bonds will. Why does this make sense? Well, let's go back to that example of AT&T and Verizon. If I purchase a bond from AT&T, and let's now assume that it's a one-year bond, so my money is going to be repaid in one year at 2%, versus if I bought a 20-year bond with AT&T at 2%. Now, in reality, that would never happen. I would demand a higher rate if I'm going to hold something for 20 years as opposed to one year. But that 20-year bond is going to get hit way harder as Verizon comes out and says we're paying rates at this level or as interest rates as a whole now increase to 3 4 5%. The reason for that is you're now holding a bond that's yielding a lower-than-market return for a longer period of time. So if we look at it this year, this is performance 2022 performance through October 1st. Here's how a few of the various indices have done. So Barclays, it tracks just bonds. It's kind of like the S&P 500. is just an index that tracks uh, stocks. Well, Barclays does the same thing for some bond indices. And if you look at the Barclays U.S. Treasury one to three year index, so government bonds that mature between one to three years out, it's down this year through October 1st, about four and a half percent. Well, if you look at the Barclays U.S. Treasury five to seven year index, it's down about 12.4 percent this year. And if you look at the Barclays U.S. Treasury 20 plus year index, it's down over 30 percent through October 1st of this year. Now, for context, the S&P 500 through that same time period was down around 24% or so. So you can see how these long-term bonds have actually gotten hit way harder than even the S&P 500, which is an all-stock index. Now, if we back way up, one-month U.S. Treasury bills, so not any of those one to three year or five to seven or 20 plus years, but one-month U.S. Treasury bills, so kind of the most conservative, safest investment you can really have, at least generally accepted for preservation of capital it's yielded 3.3%. Now, inflation has been at 2.9% if you go back all the way to the 1920s. So it's been a real return of about 0.4%. So as you can see, shorter term bonds get hit less. There's less risk there, but there's also far less return. Now, if we look at long-term government bonds since 1920s, they've averaged about 5.6% per year in growth. So you're taking more risk, as you saw with a 20-plus year bond being down 30-plus percent this year. Well, over time, they've yielded 5.6% compared to ultra-short government bonds at 3.3%.
So that's just some context in terms of this year's performance versus historical performance. We are seeing one of the most dramatic hits to bonds in the history of bonds, at least over the last several decades. So it's certainly been painful. Now, the question is, should you get out of bonds? With the rates going up, with everything happening, should you get out of bonds? Well, the hard part is if you're a long-term bond investor, what's happening right now is actually healthy for you over the next 20, 30 plus years you're now going to have a higher interest rate over the period of that time. The challenging part is you've gone through a really big hit in order to get that. So there's going to be some time to break even, or it's going to take some time to break even. But once that break even point is crossed, and that break even point is going to be determined based upon uh, the maturity of your bonds, the duration of your bonds, a few other factors, but you've already gone through that drop. A lot of people are saying, should I get out of this? Well, what are you getting out of it for? Is it trying to time the market? Is it trying to say you'll get back in when things get better? Same thing is true with bonds as with stocks is the stock market is constantly incorporating all known and expected information, which makes it very difficult to outperform the stock market. Bond market is the same way. If you go back 20 years ago, there were exactly 1,584 fixed income, aka bond mutual funds. Only 50% of them survived, and only 15% of those outperformed the unmanaged bond index. So again, as tempting as it is to say, oh my gosh, why would I keep holding my bonds? Let me just get out now till interest rates normalize and then get back in. Well, even professional bond money managers, 85% of them underperformed the simple unmanaged bond index, which is just to say they hold the bonds and let it ride. So as we're trying to second guess this, this is why it's so crucial to have a financial plan. And really, what can you do? Well, here's some things that I like to look at, at least high level. Number one, I don't like taking risks with bonds. What do I mean by that? Well, when you look at bonds, what is their role in your portfolio? Their role is stability. Their role is consistency. Yes, this year, all bonds have gotten whacked. But when you look at long-term bonds, when a long-term bond is down over 30% so far this year, that doesn't really offer the stability you'd like to see from the conservative portion of your portfolio. There's a lot of risk embedded in that. And if you're going to take risk, well, in my opinion, take the risk in the part of your portfolio that's actually going to be growing for you over time, which is the stock portion. So let's not take risk with the bond portion of our portfolio. Let's use them and let's have them fill a role. And that role should be stability. That role should be income. That role should be something that you can draw from even as stock markets are falling. Number two, the second thing you can do is diversify your bond portfolio. Now, if you're just in a standard 60-40 or 70-30 because of your risk tolerance and you're really not drawn from your bond portfolio, you can just have a total bond market fund do the role. It's going to own some short-term, medium-term, whatever term, depending on your portfolio or your your fund, Um, but it's going to be there and it's going to serve its purpose. But if you're retired, and if you've listened to how I recommend people structure their retirement portfolio, we need to have each particular investment play a very particular role in your ability to take income. So if we use a standard example of saying, let's have five years of living expenses in your portfolio and something that you could draw from, even if the stock market gets hit really hard and takes a very long time to recover, well, that thing might be bonds. But as we've seen, not all bonds are created equal. Short-term bonds have a lower return, but they also have less risk. Long-term bonds have a higher return, but they also have more risk. So if you're retired and you're actually living on some of your portfolio and you want five years set aside in living expenses, do you do something like one year in almost like a cash equivalent, or maybe it's a very ultra short-term bond fund? Then do you do a couple years in a short-term bond fund portfolio? It's maybe one to three years in duration, and then maybe a couple years in intermediate-term bonds. 
what this is doing for you is it's almost like laddering CDs, but in a bond way and in a way that's more intentional to your portfolio, where if you need it, you've got one year of super conservative short-term fixed income. What that does is it buys you time to be able to have the rest of your fixed income portfolio or bond portfolio in something that's going to grow a little bit more, but also going to fluctuate a little bit more. So this comes back to engineering a portfolio that will have money for you, that will have income for you or something to draw, something available to draw, regardless of what's happening in the market. And again, yes, this year, everything has gotten hit. This is a very odd year in the grand scheme of things. But having this will help to minimize some of the damage the year like this can do when you look at the value of your bonds. And then the third thing I recommend is understand that rates rising. And I'm not going to say what the Fed's doing is good or bad. I've, I've certainly got my issues with them. I'm going to save that for a different day. But understand that rates rising as a whole is a net positive for bondholders. It's taken a step back today on the value of your bond portfolio. As rates have increased, every bond portfolio for the most part has taken a step back, meaning it's gone down in value. But in exchange for that, your bonds are now yielding a higher interest rate than they were at the beginning of the year. So if you look at this, what this means is if you're retiring and you maybe have 20, 30 plus years that you need to live on this money for, what this is telling you is for that 20, 30 plus years, you're now going to have higher interest rates. Now, obviously, they could fall again. But as a whole, as we look at this, this is now telling you the bond portion of your portfolio as interest is being paid, it can get reinvested at higher and higher interest rates, which means more and more income from the bond portion of your portfolio, which has actually been something that's been missing for a very long time. With interest rates so low, bonds are yielding next to nothing, which was one of the reasons stocks were so attractive is you get a higher dividend yield on the S&P 500 than you could get uh, interest rate yield on a 10-year treasury. But what this is looking at is now for the duration of your retirement, or as long as you'll be in these bonds, they're going to be paying higher rates. So it's a step back. It will take some time to recover. There should be a plan in place to make sure your bond portfolio is incorporated into your overall portfolio, which is incorporated into your financial plan. But as you look at it, this will be a net positive. It just won't feel like that for some time because you've gone through some pain. It will take a little bit of time to recover. So it will take some time to break even. But after that break even point with bonds offering higher interest rates, it will be a better net impact or net benefit to the total return of your portfolio. So that is it for today's episode. Kathy, thank you very much for that question. If you are listening and have a question, I love when these questions come in. I can't answer all of them, but what I do try to do is pick the ones that are most timely and most relevant, and I do read through all of them, and I have a list, a compiled list of all these. So thank you for your question. If you're listening and have a question, go to the readyforretirement.co webpage to submit that. Please leave a review if you've not already done so, and I'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.